Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John. We're going to be finishing up John chapter 14 this morning, and if you're visiting with us, we've been studying through this great Gospel over the last couple of years, and, and uh, we're, we're making some progress here. So, John chapter 14, and uh, going to begin reading in verse 27 this morning. John chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Father, we thank you once again for the privilege we have of, 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 of having your word, uh, having a copy of your word, to be able to study your word in a context like this. and. Lord, we desperately need your spirit to illuminate us, to understand what Jesus meant by what he said here, and and then how it applies to our lives in a very practical way. Lord, show us the implications for where we're at today, each of us at a different place. Lord, while there's one meaning uh, of, of this text and Christ's words, there's many applications. And so would your spirit actively be working amongst us, applying this message to each and every heart, Lord, in a way that people would leave here knowing that you spoke to them directly today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, few things complicate um, and control and at times even cripple our lives uh, more than fear and anxiety. And dealing with the, the, the paralyzing effects of anxiety and, and fear is, is just part of living in a fallen world. We're regularly faced with all sorts of problems and, and pressures and, and challenges and, and conflicts in life which, which tend to make us feel worried or, or scared. Furthermore, the fact that, that our circumstances are, are constantly changing makes it hard to, to experience true lasting peace. Peace, whether global peace or personal peace, uh, seems to be the most elusive thing in the universe. The world, I think, is sensitive to this. Uh, They're sympathetic to people's fears and anxieties, and they've sought to provide help through psychology and pharmacology. And and you know that psychologists claim to have diagnosed a a number of of anxiety disorders, as they're called, whether it's separation anxiety disorder or social anxiety disorder, and uh, which they, by the way, say are all incurable but treatable. That's supposed to be the good news, right? Uh, you can't be cured of these things, it's just the way you are, but we can treat them uh, through medications like Paxil and Zoloft and other pharmaceutical type drugs. And, and, and a term that I think has become very popular in our day is panic attack. You may have used that term. Uh, you've heard other people, I'm sure, hear, uh, use that term. Uh, and according to psychologists, a panic attack is a, is a mental illness caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain resulting in a person being repeatedly and unexpectedly overcome with fear and anxiety. 
Uh, to the point that their heart begins to race and their hands and face begin to sweat. Their bodies even shake and tremble at times and they experience shortness of breath and pain in their chest and, and those are some of the symptoms. And anyone who's experienced those symptoms of, of a so-called panic attack ha- has allowed fear and anxiety to consume their thoughts, to take over their emotions and to control their actions. And yet the prevailing opinion is it's not a person's fault because it's out of their control. They can't help it. But according to what Jesus said here in John 14, that's just not true. Because he said in verse 1, do not let your heart be, what? Troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And here in verse 27, he says again, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So two times, Jesus commanded the disciples to not let their hearts be troubled, and he also added the second time to not be afraid. In other words, fear and anxiety are sins that were commanded not to commit. Now, that may be hard for some of you to hear because I think that fear and anxiety have fallen into the category in the church today of acceptable sins. Jerry Bridges wrote a great book, right, called Acceptable or Respectable Sins, uh, but I would say acceptable sins. And if I were to say, hey, how many of you guys really struggle with lying and cheating and stealing? Raise your hand. I think you'd be all like, I ain't about to raise my hand and admit that in front of all these people, right? But if I said, hey, how many of you guys struggle with fear and anxiety, worry? Raise your hand. You'd be like, oh, yeah, that's me. Yeah, over here, I, I do that all the time. As if it's almost okay. Like you get a buy, you get a pass on that one, right? It's it's not that big of a deal. Well, the good news is that God never commands us to do or not do anything that he doesn't also grant us the grace and the power to obey. In other words, Jesus' words here imply that the disciples had the ability to to control their thoughts and emotions and reactions when they felt worried and and scared, and by God's grace, so can you. No matter what circumstances you may be facing at any given time in your life, what what, what Jesus said to his disciples in, in today's passage is a prescription to remedy what is ultimately a spiritual problem rather than a mental problem. Well, just to remind you, uh, Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples on the night before he was crucified, and he had just shared with them the sad and shocking news that he was about to leave them, and they couldn't go with him, and so the disciples had what the world would call a panic attack. They were having a panic attack in the upper room. Uh, They were unexpectedly overcome with fear and anxiety at the thought of being separated from their beloved master. And you can imagine that their emotions, they felt like they were on a roller coaster ride in that upper room. And so Jesus observed their symptoms and instantly diagnosed their problem and correctly prescribed peace to calm their fears and to get their emotions and actions under control. Now, in the previous verses leading up to this, we, 
we, we know that Jesus has been telling them about all the amazing benefits and blessings that would come to them as a result of him leaving them and returning to heaven. And he mentioned how they would have a home in heaven and they would be able to know and, and talk to the Father through prayer, through his intercessory ministry at the right hand of the Father. They would have an advocate and they would be used by God to do even greater things than Jesus did. And then last week we saw the biggest blessing, the best blessing that, that Jesus promised to, to send somebody just like him to take his place, the Holy Spirit who would help us learn and, and live out all that he had instructed and all that he's modeled for us while he was here on earth. And now in these remaining verses, Jesus promised to give them what they needed the most then and there. And what was it? Peace. I mean, it's like, hey, Jesus, you know, hey, that's awesome that someday I'm going to get to live in heaven with you in the Father's house. And it's really great that once you get there, you're going to send the Holy Spirit. But man, I need something right now. What am I going to do right now? Okay, i got to wait till Pentecost to get the Holy Spirit. What am I going to do right now? And so he knew exactly what they needed right then and there, and that was what? Peace. And so essentially what he's saying here is, listen, I'm going back to heaven to prepare a place for you. And as soon as I get there, I'm going to send the helper, I'm going to send the comforter, but now I want to leave you with a parting gift. I give you my peace. Now, we've all watched some movie uh, where the climactic scene, right, is this uh, person that's going away forever uh, or maybe on their deathbed and they're saying to their loved one, hey, I want to give you this. And there's something, their, their prized possession, whatever it was, their sword, right, their weapon uh, or, or some special book or something. And, and it's something that they treasured and they used their entire life. And now they wanted to pass it on as they were leaving to their loved one. And so oftentimes the loved one's like, hey, no, 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 I can't take that from you. That's yours. And they say, no, no, this has served me well. I don't need it anymore, right? I'm not, where I'm going, I'm not going to need it, but, but I want to give it to you because now you need it. And that's essentially what, what's going on here, that Jesus is giving them the gift, this parting gift of peace. And, and, uh, and, and not, not only did he provide them the present of peace, as we're going to call it this morning, but he also set the precedent for peace. In other words, he set the pattern, the example of peace. And so we're going to look at this passage just under those two headings, the present of peace and the precedent for peace. First of all, the present of peace in verse 27. Notice he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And so Jesus knew at that moment that his disciples were experiencing a sense of loss. And they were feeling sad. And they were feeling scared. You ever been there? something's going on in your heart and your life and, and you're feeling a sense of loss and you're feeling sad and you're feeling scared as you consider the future. He also knew that the circumstances that were about to be put in would even make them more sad and more scared because things were just about to get crazy. And he knew the one thing that they needed more than anything else to, to sustain them through what was to come was peace. And so he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now, in, in Jesus' day, that word peace was a very uh, precious word. 
you know that the Jews, even to this, to this day, will greet one another or say goodbye to one another with the word what? Shalom, which means peace, which that word, it's really the Hebrew word shalom, uh, is, is rich in meaning. It's, it's, it, it means whole, it means complete, it means be well, be healthy, be secure and safe. And, and, and that's not necessarily the same word here. This is not the word shalom uh, necessarily, but, um, but, but it's the word peace. And, and, and it's not referring to objective peace uh, like the peace that we have with God um, that Jesus was about to secure for his followers by paying for their sins on the cross. This is not the, the peace that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not the, hey, you're saved, and now you have, you're no longer at war with God, you're no longer an enemy with God, but you have peace with God. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. It's not the objective peace that he was, was giving them here or leaving them with, but it was more the subjective peace that, that Christians enjoy on a moment-by-moment basis as we choose to trust God in the midst of our ever-changing circumstances. If you want a, a simple definition of peace, the peace I think that Jesus was referring to here, it's inner tranquility based on God's personality. Inner tranquility based on God's Personality. In other words, let me expand that to a, a larger definition. Uh, peace is a calm, quiet, restful confidence based on the knowledge that our lives are in the hands of a wise, loving, sovereign, all-powerful God who is providentially working out all things according to his plan. That's the peace, I think, that Jesus was talking about. That that calm, quiet, restful confidence based on the knowledge that our lives are in the hands of a wise, loving, sovereign, all-powerful God who is providentially working out all things according to his perfect plan. In other words, this peace is entirely independent of our circumstances. It has nothing to do with what we're going through at the present moment. So regardless of how troubling or discouraging or confusing or frustrating or, or threatening our circumstances may be, we know without a shadow of a doubt that God works all things together for what? For good, Romans eight twenty eight, And even what Satan means for evil, God means for, for good. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph lived that principle. And I think we just need to understand that, that there is absolutely no way living on planet Earth to avoid trouble. But there is a way to avoid having a troubled heart. Jesus went on to say in John 16, verse 33, he said, These things I've spoken to you so that, you may, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation or trouble, but take courage, I have overcome the world. And so in order to maintain a, a calm and, and quiet and peaceful heart amidst all the, the troubling situations and circumstances of life, we need to rest in who God has revealed himself to be in his word. Someone said it this way, that, that this peace is born from a living personal relationship with Jesus and deepened through a growing surrender of life to his gracious rule. 
So bottom line, the reason why some of us struggle with, 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 with peace and we're, 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 we're anxious and we're fearful is we're not, number one, trusting God, and number two, we're not submitting to God's will for our lives. We're fighting Him. We're resisting Him. We're basically saying, I don't like your plan for my life. I don't like the situation I'm in right now, right? And so you're not surrendering your life to His gracious rule and reign over you. Notice he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. The world, when it comes to peace, the world has only so much to give. And so the world gives us peace sporadically, um, sparingly, I would even say superficially. Um, I mean, the world... The world's peace, or the, the peace that the world has to offer, is, is really dependent on our circumstances, which are constantly changing, right? We've mentioned that. And that's why those who trust in relationships or, or achievements or experiences or material things, uh, you, you trust in those things for peace, that's why you always feel like you're, you're on this, this emotional roller coaster. In fact, if you want to really get down to it, uh, the, the Bible says that unbelievers have no peace. The peace that they might feel, the peaceful moments, right, of when they get that new thing or their, things are going great in their marriage or things their kids are doing awesome or, or they get to have this amazing experience or, right, and they feel a sense of peace, it, it's really no peace at all. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 22, God says there is no peace for the wicked. Isaiah 57, verse 20, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. That might be a good description of some of your lives, right? That you just feel like your life is just this, 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 this churning sea, and it's just tossing up all this junk and garbage all the time. You're like, you never can get your bearing. In fact, when, when Paul was describing the depravity of man in Romans chapter 3, when he said that there is no one who does good, not even one, we've all turned away, we've all together become corrupt, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he added this line, he said, the path of peace they have not known. That's just part of our depravity, is that we have no peace. Now the peace that Jesus gives, on the other hand, is based on his unchanging person and his unchanging work. And so it is true, lasting peace. I just think of Jesus, the example of Jesus when he was on that boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee when the storm was raging and uh, the disciples were freaking out. I mean, talk about being scared, right? Um, they were scared um, to death, literally. And, and what was Jesus doing the whole time? He was sleeping in the back of the boat. Now, from a human perspective, he was exhausted. And so he just crashed, right? Physically just crashed. But I think from, on a spiritual level, the reason why he was sleeping like a baby in the back of the boat during the midst of this horrific storm because he had nothing to fear. His heart was at perfect peace and rest. And notice what he says here. 
in verse 27, he says, my peace I give to you. In other words, I give you the same peace as I have. And, and that comes from knowing, right? How did Jesus get, where did he get the peace from? He knew that everything that happened to him was all part of God's plan, that God had everything under control. And so you may be going through some storm right now in your life, and it might be causing you to toss and turn at night. And why is that? Well, I mean, there's a lot of stress sometimes in our minds and our hearts and even in our bodies, right, when we go through difficult times. But, but what might help you be able to sleep like a baby in the midst of maybe the most um, difficult trial you've ever been through in your life, it's knowing that God has everything under control. It's all part of his perfect plan. Perfect peace comes from knowing that God has a perfect plan. Now, just based on the context here of Jesus just promising the Holy Spirit, right? Even in verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring you to your remembrance, bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And then the very next thing he says is, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. I think this is a good reminder of the connection between peace and the Holy Spirit. Because some of you are sitting there going, Man, I, I, I don't have this. And I need it, but how do I get it? Where do I find it? Seems like this is elusive in my life. I know I lack this and I need it. I want it. Where does it come from? Who does it come from? Ultimately, it comes from the Holy Spirit. Jesus' peace is given to us via the Holy Spirit, whom he sent as his replacement. So ultimately, the Spirit is the one who grants us peace. In fact, it's one of the fruits that he produces in our lives, right? Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, right? So if you're having a hard time figuring out where this is coming from and you're grasping for some peace and you're not, hey, go straight to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, would you please produce the fruit of peace in my life? Now be careful <laughs> when you pray that, right? Because he typically will put you in situations that require that you have peace, right? Some situation that's troublesome and your heart's tempted to be troubled and anxious and fearful. And, and so you'll be in a situation. He says, okay, I'm going to teach you how to have peace in the midst of the storm. But you're never going to learn it when everything's, when every, you're, everything's smooth sailing, right? No need to be peaceful. That. Everything's peaceful, right? No big deal. It's not hard to have peace. And so that's the present of peace. Now let's look at the pre- precedent for peace. Now I chose that word precedent, even though it's not uh, a word we typically use, but I like the definition of that word. A, a precedent is an earlier event or action that is regarded as an example or guide to be considered in subsequent similar circumstances. Okay, now think about it. I'm going to read that definition again. Think about that in regards to Jesus, right, being an example or a guide for us when we face similar circumstances as he was experiencing right here uh, in the upper room. Okay, A precedent is an earlier event or action that is regarded as an example or guide to be considered in subsequent similar circumstances. The point is this. Jesus set an example of, of someone whose heart was at perfect peace and rest in the midst of dealing with selfish, short-sighted, Followers, um, anticipating his, his approaching death. I mean, you imagine if you knew you were going to be crucified 
within 24 hours. That's a pretty stressful thing to be thinking about, right? And then on top of that, knowing that really behind all of it, he was being assaulted by his enemy, Satan. He was under satanic attack. And so I just broke this, this, this remaining section in, into two sections, um, how Jesus set the precedent for peace in the midst of selfish action, number one, and then also how he set the precedent for peace in the midst of satanic attack, which, by the way, are similar circumstances, right, that we find ourselves in on a regular basis. Are you ever surrounded by selfish people? Well, I want to live your life then. If you're, you're like, yeah, we're, we're always surrounded by selfish people. In fact, we're one of them, right? Uh, are, do you ever experience satanic attack? Yeah, like every day, right? Every hour, every moment potentially. So let's see the example that Jesus sets for us. Um, notice verse 28. He says, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, I've told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. Up to this point, Jesus had sought to encourage them, his disciples, by showing what his departure would mean for them, how how they would benefit from him going back to heaven. But now he, he, he ends here by telling them what, what his departure would mean for him. It would not only be better for them, for him to go to heaven, it would also be better for him. And so consequently, they should have been happy for Jesus that he was going back to heaven where his intimacy and, and glory with the Father would be restored. He, he'd been telling them about this in John 13, verse 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. Later on, He prayed in John 17, verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so Jesus says, listen, if you guys, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. So Jesus is lovingly confronting them here that their love for him was pretty selfish. Um, it wasn't what it should have been. They were thinking more about themselves than they were about Jesus. They, they were having a hard time accepting God's plan for their lives for their future, right? They couldn't imagine anything better than having Jesus right there with them. And, and bottom line, they weren't ready to give him up. They just weren't ready in their hearts to give him up. I appreciate Chuck Swindoll. I'm always uh, careful to, to, to read whatever he's written on a passage if I have it because um, he's just always so practical down to earth. And this is what he said He said about the disciples, he says, theirs was a selfish affection, a desire to keep rather than share. Although God has given us people and things to enjoy, it's important to hold them with a loose grasp. Someday God may choose to take them from your hands and the loss will be less painful if you're not clutching them so tightly. 
He says, always remember, the Lord not only gives, but he may someday take away that which he has for a time and trust it to your care. We just sang about that, Job 1, right? And he says, and if he does, if he chooses to take something away, your possessiveness could find you in a tug of war with God. The point being, if you truly love someone, you want what's best for them right? You want what's best for them, which in this case was obviously for Jesus to return to his glory in heaven. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love does not seek its, what? Its own. In other words, love's not selfish. And, and you know, maybe a good example of this would be when someone dies, right? Somebody that we really, really love dies, and it's natural, I think, to selfishly wish that they were still with us. And we're more focused initially on our loss rather than their gain. And so I think there comes a point when you have to stop grieving over your loss and start rejoicing in their gain, right? And if you truly love them, it's better that they're not here, but that they're there, right? And that's what Jesus was getting at here when he said, if you loved me, you would have what? Rejoiced. Listen, Guys, what I'm going through here, you, you've watched this. I'm enduring all these terrible things from the mouths and the, the hands of, of, of these people that I created and, and, and I'm, I'm being hated and persecuted and blasphemed and, 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 and I'm going to be beaten and spit on and, and, and ultimately crucified by the very people I came to save. But by going back to heaven, I'll escape all this and I would go from humiliation to exaltation. And I think that's what he meant when he said, I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, at first glance, that phrase might confuse you. Because it seems to contradict everything that Jesus has said about himself up to this point, right? That I and the Father are one, right? We're the same Um, basically claiming that he was God. And now he's saying that the Father is greater than I. And I'm thinking, John, what are you doing, dude? You've been doing such a great job making a case for the deity of Jesus Christ here, right? And and, And why did you let that get in there? Man, that's just like totally, you just shot yourself in the foot, right? You undid your entire argument for 14 chapters that Jesus is God. And now you, you should have just left that out. And by the way, that's why Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults like to use this verse to prove that Jesus is not God, because that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? If, if that's all you have is that verse, rip it out of context, right, and just say, look at what he said. Well, this has got to be understood in the context of Jesus' entire life and ministry and, and really in the entire Gospel of John. Jesus was not denying his deity here. He was simply acknowledging the subordinate role that he humbly and willingly assumed in coming to earth and becoming a man and dying on a cross. That's what he was getting at. And I think the other, there's other um, places in Scripture that help us interpret what Jesus was saying here, accurately interpret it. 1 Corinthians 11, 3, Paul was addressing the the uh, men and women's roles in the church in Corinth, they had gotten all confused about that. And, 
And uh, so he says this in 1 Corinthians eleven three. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and that the man is the head of a woman, and that God is the head of Christ. So you all understand that Christ is the head of of us, right? He's our authority, and we submit to Him. We also understand that that the man, the husband, is the head of a woman, right? That women are to submit to the husband, and the husband is supposed to love the wife. And and then, but finally, the last phrase he says, "And God is the head of Christ." You're like, whoa, wait a minute, time out. I thought that the three persons in the Trinity were equal, right? Equal in essence and nature. And that's true, but also we talked about last week when we were talking about the Trinity, that they all serve different roles and functions. And so the second member of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus Christ, submitted himself to the Father, right, and his will, and accomplished the salvation, God's plan of salvation, the Father's plan of salvation, by coming and humbling himself to the point of dying on a cross. I think the best passage to look at is Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This is the, the, what's called the kenosis passage where Jesus, uh, the second, mem- second person in the Trin- Trinity, laid aside the independent use of his attributes and really uh, took on the limitations of humanity. And notice what he says here, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, i.e. he was God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. God the Father. And so all that to say, what Jesus was saying here when he said, for the Father is greater than I, he's just simply saying, I lowered myself and submitted to the incarnation, which ultimately resulted in my exaltation, right? Verse 29, now I've told you before it happens so that when it appears you may believe. Simply, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm predicting my death and resurrection and ascension so when it happens, your faith will be strengthened. You'll be like, hey, wait a minute. I I remember he said that this is is exactly what was going to happen. We believe. And it would just affirm and confirm everything he had ever said and done, right? The fact that he could tell the future. Something only God can do. So that's an example of peace in the midst of selfish action. He was surrounded by selfishness. And yet, you know, here they were fighting over who was the greatest among them, right? And and, uh, and they're freaking out about him leaving and they have no clue what he's going through, right? There was this pettiness and this self-centeredness all around him, swirling all around him, but he's unfaced. He's unfaced. Why? Because he has peace, knowing that God's in control, right? And this is all part of his perfect plan. So when you get in that situation where you're surrounded by pettiness and self-centeredness, right? And you want to just like tear into somebody, right? Because you got to just feel your blood pressure rising and going, are you kidding me? And you want to see, right? Uh, Hey, relax. 
Rest in God. Now notice in the last two verses how he set the precedent for peace in the midst of satanic attack. Verse 30, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he is nothing in me. And so Jesus knew his time was was short with his disciples. It was quickly coming to a close because Judas was at that very moment in the process of betraying him uh, to the chief priests and the scribes and the, 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 their, their army. Um, chapter 13, verse 2, you remember uh, how this upper room began. Uh, it said, during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So the devil was already at work in, in, in Judas. And then uh, Jesus said, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And the one who I give this morsel will, is the betrayer. In verse 27 of chapter 13, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And he had left that upper room. The disciples had no clue what he was doing. They thought he was going to go pay some offering or buy something that they needed because he was the guy holding the money. Well, Jesus knew exactly where he had went to make a deal, right? To cut a deal with the religious leaders. And it was only a matter of time before he would come back and uh, hand him over to uh, the Jewish leaders. Well, he also knew behind all that, though, it wasn't so much about Judas as it was about who? The devil, who he refers to here as the ruler of the world. That's what he was called in chapter 12. Uh, verse 31, now judgment is upon the world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Uh, he's going to mention it again in chapter 16, verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Um, Paul called uh, Satan the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Uh, John, in his later epistle, 1 John 5.19, says we know that we're of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You say, whoa, how did Satan get in charge of the world? God let him be in charge of the world for a season. And uh, at some day, someday, right, that will all end. And... Um, but in the meantime, he's ruling this evil world system. He's in control of it, obviously under the control of God's sovereignty. Um, but notice what he says about Satan. I love this. He says, I will not speak much more with you, for the rule of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Maybe the better way, the best way to understand that, or maybe just translate that, is, is, and he's got nothing on me. We know that expression, right? Hey, they got nothing on me. He's got nothing on me. The point was Jesus was sinless, and so Satan had nothing that he could accuse him of or, or blame him for. Uh, Satan had no claim on Jesus' life whatsoever, and even though uh, his death would look like a victory for Satan, it really sealed his defeat, didn't it? Satan thought he was using Judas and, and, and the Jews and the, and the Romans to, to kill Jesus, but Jesus' life was not taken from him. He voluntarily laid it down out of love for his Father. That's exactly what he said back in chapter 10, verse 18. No one has taken my life away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Listen, Jesus died 
because he delighted to do the Father's will. That's what he says in the last verse. He says, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Just so you know, guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be falsely accused. And I'm going to be ultimately crucified. But it's not Satan's doing. Ultimately, right? He did play a part in that. But it's ultimately so that the world would know how much I love my daddy. That I'm going to do exactly what he commanded me to do, even if it means dying on a cross. Which, by the way, was no easy task. You remember, and we'll see shortly, when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he was wrestling with the Lord if there's any other way, right? But not my will, but yours be done, right? So by being obedient to death, even death on a cross, as it says in Philippians, Jesus was showing the world how much he loved his Father. And I don't know that this is an aspect of Jesus' death that we think about enough. I mean, when we think about Jesus' death, we like to think about as, you know, Jesus died on the cross to show us how much he loves us. We all like that. That makes us feel good, right? But how about this? That Jesus died on the cross to show us how much he loves his Father. In other words, it's not about you. <laughs> and we always want to make it about us, don't we? And, and, and the reality is we kind of got just swept up in this love relationship between the Father and the Son. And we, God was the, the Father was looking for a bride for his Son because to show the Son how much he loved him. And, and the Father wanted to show how much he loved, or the, the Son wanted to show the Father how much he loved him. And so he was willing to die for that bride. And, and guess what? We just happened to be caught in the middle of this amazing love relationship. I was going to say love triangle, but that sounds somehow, uh, you know, love triangle, but it's true. This, this, the Holy Spirit, right? The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. We got caught up in this love triangle between the Trinity. And, and so we should just stand back in awe and say, this is not about us. This is about them. And, and we know that, that um, uh, the reason why I like this, and I mentioned this last week, that, that Jesus never told anybody to do anything that he wasn't already doing himself. And we know that Jesus repeatedly challenged his disciples to, to prove their love for him by obeying his commands. We, we saw this last week in verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 21, uh, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And then in chapter 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus is the ultimate example of loving obedience. What should motivate us to obey? It's our love, right, for Christ. What motivated him to obey? It was his love for the Father. And I think that every Christian should should make it their goal to be able to say when somebody asks you why you do something or why you don't do something, right? Have you ever been asked, hey, why did you do that? Or why don't you do that? Why don't you come with us every lunch when we go down to the place and you don't come with us and you, 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 know, you stay here and you read your Bible and you're, you go here, you know, you're di- why are you so different, right? Why don't you do these things and why, or why do you do these things? 
that we would be able to answer this. The world must know that I love God and that I do exactly what God commands me to do. I mean, what a cool answer would that be, right? Hey, why don't you come down to the bar with us tonight? I'm sorry. The world must know how much I love God and therefore I do exactly what he's commanded me to do. Could you say that? I think probably it'd be more accurate, right, that, well, I, some of you would have to admit I hardly ever do <laughs> what God commands me to do. Or I partially do what God commands me to do. Or I mostly do what God commands me to do. Or how about this? Jesus said, I do exactly what God commands me to do. Now, obviously, while we're here on this earth, none of us are going to be able to make that claim, right? Because none of us can obey perfectly. But that should be our goal, right? To obey as closely and as much as possible. We must never forget that we show the world how extravagantly we love God by how exactly we obey His commands. You want to show the world how much you love God? Then you be obedient to His commands. This last phrase, get up, let us go from here, is kind of... um, not clear, because you still got three more chapters that are considered the upper room discourse. Um, and so we really don't know if the disciples left the upper room at this moment. Um, he may have said that, but didn't leave immediately. I mean, if you've ever been out at, to dinner with a, a large crowd, right, at a restaurant or even in your home, and you got 12 plus people, and you say, okay, I think it's time to go. Does that usually happen right away? No, people keep talking and there's things that are going on and then maybe 15 minutes later, you're like, okay, I think it's time to go. And, and, and you try again and then another 15 minutes later, right? So that could have been the dynamic here that they just kind of lingered there a little while longer as they finished their discussion or perhaps they actually got up from the upper room and Jesus gave the remainder of this discourse on the, on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane as they walked along uh, towards the base of the Mount of Olives. That could be what's going on. It really doesn't matter at the end of the day because we have the truth of his instruction. But what's the point? Listen, as disciples of Jesus Christ, the challenge for us today is to trust God even when you're experiencing a sense of loss and feeling sad and scared. And the key to not letting our hearts be troubled in a troubling world in a world full of trouble, how do we keep our hearts from being troubled and, and not to mention the fact that we have an absent Christ and we have an active devil? We see that in this passage, right? How do, how do we do that? It's by resting and relying on the peace that Christ has given us. You say, great, Ken, that sounds good, but I read that verse and I'm like, okay, that seems so like out there and can you make that more practical? What does that look like practically? How can I have that peace? How can I experience that peace? What can I do when my mind is reeling? And sometimes it just starts to reel. And, 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 and what about when my emotions are swirling out of control and my heart begins to race and pound? What do I do? At that moment, what do I do? Number one, you trust God. You trust God. And you maybe need to memorize Isaiah chapter 26, 
verses 3 and 4. I love this. The steadfast of mind will keep in, you, you will keep in perfect peace. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. You want to be kept in perfect peace by the Lord? You must have a steadfast mind. And what specifically needs to be going on in your mind, it's faith in God, right? What's the opposite of fear? Faith. What's the opposite of anxiety? Peace. And so you need to, number one, trust God. Number two, you need to pray. When you start to feel stressed out and you start to freak out, right, Um, you feel that quote-unquote panic attack, Coming on, right? Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the first thing you need to do is thank God for this circumstance, this situation, this trial that, that, that he's put you in to, 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 to help you learn to trust him. So that's, sometimes that's the hurdle to get over. i got to be thankful for this? Yes. That's what it says. With thanksgiving, right? So thank God for his wisdom, his love, his sovereignty, his power in putting you in this situation, right? And then pray. You pray. You, you, you express. You turn that care into a prayer. You, you present your request to God. You say, God, I, I'm feeling stressed right now. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling scared, right? Could you, would you help me, right? And you begin just being honest with God and talking to God and, and praying to God. And then notice what he promises. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you pray with gratitude and express your care to the Lord, he will grant you peace, which is... Beyond comprehension, how can you be at perfect peace and rest when you just got diagnosed with terminal cancer? Is that possible? Apparently it is. If you, right, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your mind from freaking out, Right? It'll put you at peace. But then notice, it doesn't stop there. He says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is a good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. What do we normally do? We, we maybe get to the point where we are thankful, we express that, we pray, and then we say, in Jesus' name, amen, and we jump in our car to go to work, and what do we do the entire way to work? We worry. We, we take that, we, we, leave, we bring this to the Lord and we say, hey, we're laying this before you, God. It's bigger than me. I can't handle it. So I'm leaving it with you. And then when he's not looking, we take it with us, right? And we, we mull it over in our minds for, for hours, right? And we just think about it and dwell on it. And we start to get anxious and worried again. And the peace just goes out the window, right? So it's very important that you control what you think about. You got to think about what is true and what is right and what is honorable, Keep your mind set on the right things. And then it's still not done. Notice this, verse 9. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He wasn't done talking about peace yet. So what's this principle? As you're seeking to keep your mind stayed on the right things, thinking about the right things, right? You need to be doing the right things in the meantime. 
As you're waiting for God to work out his will in any situation, he says, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, do the right thing no matter how you feel. Do the right thing. Obey. That's what he's saying. Obey. Put into practice the things I've taught you. And there's, some th- there's sometimes you're like, I have no idea what to do right now. Well, are, are you trusting God? Are, are you praying? Yeah. Well, then just, just do the next right thing. <laughs> Whatever the next right thing is, just do that. And trust God that he's going to work this thing out. But instead of getting locked up and paralyzed, what do I do? Just live a life of obedience, right? And God's will will unfold before you. You know, that old hymn that I don't think we sing enough these days, got it. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Listen to the... To the um, verses, because they all have to do with exactly what Jesus was talking about in this passage. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his goodwill, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil he doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. There's a surrender, right? For the favor he shows, for the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. And then it ends like this. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet or we'll walk by his side in the way What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Father, we're grateful for uh, that hymn. We're thankful for this passage, Lord, that really ties this all together. And Lord, we confess to you that we are worry warts by nature. And uh, we uh, get easily scared. Uh, We're easily discouraged and depressed and sad by the various things that come into our lives at any given time. And Lord, I I know that this message is hitting all of us right now because we all live in a troubling world and we have an absent Christ and we have an active devil and uh, we're we're battling all those things at once. And so we, uh, Lord, are tempted every day to to allow our hearts to become troubled and and, and anxious and and, and worry and be afraid. And, And Lord, we just thank you for equipping us today with the truths that we need to, to battle that fear and that, that anxiety. And Lord, we know that it's not something we just snap our fingers and it just immediately goes away. And, uh, but Lord, it's something that's a process that we need to learn uh, to put into practice these principles. And so would you help us by your spirit to live out the truths we've learned from Christ today? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.